guys, welcome to episode 59 of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Emma Loggins, editor-in-chief at fanbolt.com. I am Matt Rodriguez, the owner-in-chief editor of shakefire.com. And I'm Mike McKinney of lastwarnedtoleavethetheater.com and atlcw.tv. And so I'm back this week. I know you guys missed Yay. me. Yay! <laughs> Wait, you were gone? We, we didn't I know. notice. You forgot my name and everything. It just, I feel I so special. We did but, not kill each other. <laughs> that's good. I mean, that's really the highlight. So, I was there are gonna, still three of us. I was going to say that Mike forgot some other names um, this past weekend <laughs> at ATX Festival <laughs> as well. So now he can join the uh, saying names wrong, uh, forgetting names club that yeah. I feel like I have founded. So Okay, I, I, will, I do have an excuse. I was interviewing a beautiful actress and I was sitting in front of a fire, and I got a little distracted. Uh-huh. That's no excuse. It's no excuse. You're supposed to be professional, Mike. Exactly. Keep it together. <laughs> um, well, speaking of uh, that incident that took place at ATX Festival out in Austin, Texas, um, this past weekend, which Mike and I attended, and... Um, it was a really good year. It was kind of chill in comparison to previous years. There was no uh, really huge draw. Battlestar Galactica was their, th- that reunion was their their big kind of thing they did this year. But that cast has done so much together that it wasn't, um, it wasn't a huge thing. It wasn't like they were reuniting the West Wing cast or Gilmore Girls. It's, I feel like Battlestar Galactica people do stuff together fairly regularly. So... Um, but I'll let, I'll let Mike start out with his, his highlights from the festival. Um, I, I, my biggest thing was that um, I went to the Northern Exposure panel, and uh, Rob Morrow, Janine Turner, uh, Cynthia Geary, and also Adam Arkin, who actually was sitting out in the audience, and then they brought him down. Uh, he wasn't supposed to be part of the panel. Uh, the the uh, uh, creator of the show and one of the writers of the show were, were there also. Um, and it was just a lot of fun. We got to watch an episode. It actually was the episode that Adam Arkin's character gets introduced to the to the show. So it was a great episode to watch. And then they were just they were having a blast. And they are trying to do a reboot. Um, all the cast members uh, that are still alive are are really anxious, including Rob Morrow, to do Northern Exposure. Um, I got to see a bunch of people that I see every year at ATX. Uh, Aero Kebble, who's got a great show called Midnight Texas that's coming out this summer on NBC. If you're a fan of True Blood, you're going to want to watch it. Um, and uh, Liz Tigler, who is a writer. She created Life Unexpected on the CW a couple of years ago. Um, I got to see her and, and just a bunch of other people. And it was just a, all around, as, as Emma said, it was kind of more relaxed ATX. It's kind of like it was... Uh, two or three years ago before the big Gilmore Girls thing happened. Um, so I had a blast. I did as well, and I was actually just trying to dig out my notes from my oversized backpack that you guys always make fun of me for. Um, <laughs> the big purple monster. <laughs> yeah, the big purple monster. Um, I went to some really cool panels, and I think those were probably uh, my, my favorite parts of the, the weekend. I did some really cool interviews, and we're going to go through one of those today which was uh the leftovers which was awesome um but some of the panels that i went to were just really honest conversations which was kind of cool and um you know doing what we all do we get a lot of 
studio approved answers, um, you know, <laughs> things that don't really talk about anything in a negative context or um, a controversial context or anything like that. And several of the converse or the panels that I went to um, was kind of just really honest about things, which I thought was really cool. Um, I went to a panel called Life After High School, which was basically examining, you know, the why we don't have shows like uh, Dawson's Creek or Felicity or anything like that anymore unless there's a supernatural twist to it. And um, Julie Pleck, who uh, was the creator of Vampire Diaries, was on that and was kind of talking about um, just the extreme amount of love that she has for 13 Reasons Why, which I still have not watched on Netflix, but... uh, Julie spoiled the ending in the panel, so I, I feel like I've watched the pan or watched the show. Um, but it was an interesting conversation about how she said, you know, CW will really let her do anything she wants to do as long as there's zombies or vampires or some sort of supernatural element to it. So it was kind of an interesting conversation about why we don't have shows, um, you know, that don't have some sort of supernatural element to them now. Um, Especially with CW. I mean, they yeah. do a lot of that stuff. I Sounds mean, like she needs to make the move to Netflix. Yeah, and I, I think uh, with the fact that she was bringing up, like, how much freedom that, you know, Netflix gives their, gives their people and, um, you know, how much she loved 13 Reasons Why and how she, she wants to make something like that, but she knows that she's not going to be able to because it's not genre-based and that's pretty much all CW is now. Um, so that was a really interesting conversation. I did find out from another panel that I attended the kind of relationship that Netflix has with um, with their their shows. Um, so it, it seems like yes, you get the freedom to to be more creative, and they're they're taking more chances on things that you know traditional networks might turn down or are not um, not want to do. Um, but that being said, it doesn't sound like they pay their writers as much. Um, so from a financial standpoint, as a writer, it sounds like, um, I mean, you guess you kind of got to decide what's more important to you, the creative freedom to be able to do something really new and cool or, you know, be paid what you would be if you were on, you know, um, cable. So that was an interesting conversation. I also went to a panel about a network's brand identity, which was really cool because they had a, an executive from Freeform there, and they kind of walked through how they transitioned over from ABC Family to Freeform and what that looked like and why they did it. And um, apparently they hired a company which actually you know, did all this research on their target demographic, which ended, it is a, uh, a 26-year-old female and uh, what would appeal to her. And they came up with the Freeform brand and they actually named it. And this is the same company that has named um, the Pentium processor and the Swiffer. And they were kind of going through like um, all of this stuff that I just feel like you never hear about, which, which was really cool. And kind of the, you know, the shift in the type of programming that they're doing now versus to what they were doing with ABC family and, and why they saw the need to rebrand the network. And, um, I, I still go, think Freeform is a ridiculous name. I do too. Like I still just, like, I mean, I'm not that much older <laughs> than 26. I'm still a millennial. So I feel yeah. like it just, it doesn't feel like it really appeals. It feels, or, it feels cheap. Yeah. It, yeah. Like, yeah. Almost like an online, is it, is it still a channel? It's I'm assuming still it's channel. still a channel. Yeah. Like, it feels like an online kind of, I don't know. 
Yeah. It just feels and, weird. And, and, and the other thing was how long it had been ABC Family. I um, mean, it had been Family before that, and then it became ABC Family. And it's just like you totally dropped this this idea of uh, that you know this this logo and everything else that you had going for so long. Um, when when I see, hear free and I watch the network. Um, so I watch stuff on that network, but it still seems rather weird to me that that it's it's called Freeform. Yeah, uh, same here. I mean, it's uh, I, I don't think ABC Family really reflected the type of programming they had. I mean, ABC Family doesn't feel like I mean, Pretty Little Liars, which was their biggest show, is a show about like high schoolers killing each other. So, I mean, it, it wasn't very family-oriented. Um, so I, I do agree that, like, rebranding was, like, a good move. But I'm just, I'm not feeling freeform. It feels like a digital, like, um, like an online streaming service that would be owned by Disney and Air Cartoons. Like, if I just look <laughs> at the logo and the name, that's kind of where I go with it. But, um it was an interesting conversation, nonetheless, and how they kind of went back and forth over whether it was going to be Disney's free forum. And then um, there was a Marvel guy on the panel who was talking about how basically every Marvel property has Marvel in front of it as a part of the title. So when they were talking about it being, um, you know, the potential of it being like Disney's Marvel whatever show on Disney's free forum, like it's it <laughs> kind of like how insane all the branding that would be a mess. It would be a mess. Do they... Do they ever talk about like publicity and promotion in that wise? In how like, because you know people how it affects like journalists like us and how we cover stuff. Because you know like there are some titles I can't think of one off the bat, but like they use a lot of pronouns and like they're really simplified, and so like they're impossible to find like to Google search because yeah. they're so generic. Or like you know how like with Marvel they put it's like. The title isn't The Avengers, it's Marvel's The Avengers. Right. And so, like, you know, just like figuring out, like, what the right title is. Like, I wonder what kind of conversations they have in terms of, you know, going over that or if they have them at all. No, I think that would be, um, that'd be a really great question to ask. I kind of wish that I had asked that. Um, I'll make a note of that for next year. Um, I did want to ask, and unfortunately my time ran out on the interview I did with The Leftovers. Um, I took the press kit that I got from season one, which was, um, well, I took the box that it came in, which was this really, really nice box. Um, what was inside of it was actually a digital picture frame that had a video running on it with members of the Guilty Remnant basically holding up a sign um, that said, Emma, you're wasting your breath, which is very reminiscent of everything we saw in season one of that show. Um, but I kind Back of want... when they did awesome press kits and yes. stuff like that. Exactly. Um, HBO <laughs> did some really cool stuff with the leftovers. They sent out like Tupperware containers for your leftovers. They sent out <laughs> like little files um, that were kind of creepy um, from information that they had collected online about you via social media. And it was the same kind of file oh. that the Guilty Remnant had for the people they were following. Um, they just did some really, really cool stuff. And press kits in general are almost becoming a, a dying art form or at least they seem like they are just because all of the screeners yeah. are going digital um and budgets are are getting cut but um i really appreciate them and i kind of wanted to have the conversation of how involved like the actual show creator and showrunner was if they had any you know um input into the marketing decisions of that but I will ask that question next time as well. <laughs> well, to show you how 
to show you how diverse uh, the ATX Festival was, Emma and I were both there for four days, and we only went to one panel together. Yeah. Which, which was, was the uh, pitch which competition, was the, right? Yeah, it was yeah. the pitch competition, which was a blast to watch because it's 10 people that are pitching network shows to network executives or it was half network executives and it was half people that have already pitched shows before and very successful like Phil Rosenthal of uh, that created Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, Liz Tigler who did Life Unexpected that I mentioned earlier. Um, so it's just a that's a fun event and the, the person that wins that event actually then gets to do a pitch to with a network, uh, an actual pitch. And they've actually had some pretty uh, successful people go on from this pitch competition and get jobs within the industry. In fact, we, uh, they interviewed uh, a person that's now on the uh, Life is uh, Life in Pieces uh, writing staff, and she won the competition two years ago. Yeah, so that that was a cool. That was a really cool event to attend. Yeah, and we found out the um, the the guy that won it last year has actually got a development deal now. Um, we don't have any more information on that, but as soon as we figure out what he's doing and we are, we're able to track it down, we'll definitely share because it was a really um, a really uh, really good pitch. It was it was very dramatic. I mean, it's going to be a heavy heavy subject uh, matter when it premieres. It's going to be an intense show to watch, but um, it's also kind of interesting when you're pitching shows that have really heavy content and are really culturally relevant right now and, and big topics um, versus comedy. Um, it's really hard to compare them to each other, and this year there were four pitches that I really, really liked, and two of them were comedies, and I didn't feel like it was really fair to compare them to um, the other two, but... Uh, yeah, and the other thing that we were we, we really noticed was the people that had uh, props, um, they had pictures up or even a, a workup on what this show would look like. Um, it helped a great deal to actually put images and kind of get a feel of the show as opposed to some of the people that didn't have any props. Yeah, you want to establish kind of a, a tone for your show and, and kind of what it will feel like, even though you don't have, you know, any footage filmed yet. And a lot of people did a really, really good job with that um, this go around. The guy that won it, um, whoa, do you remember the name of it? It was like Dr. Adventure or Dr. Was it Dr. Adventure? It was something like that. It was something like that. Yeah. Um, it was really, really good. It was basically like um, Indiana Jones meets The Simpsons, and it was a uh, an animated uh, comedy. And we'll see what happens with it. Uh, he gave a great pitch, and s some people got up there and they just they had memorized their entire pitch, and they were like shaking, like with the mic, like trying to like recall all of it, and they were talking so fast. And I was just sitting there thinking to myself, you know, as a person that occasionally has to like memorize stuff for on camera like what hell that would be to memorize like three minutes of like dialogue and have to like explain your entire show and like stay on track and not ever say like not ever get any retakes um so is that how long you get three minutes yeah yeah you get yeah they got three minutes uh the, they they did a uh they had i can't remember how many contestants they actually ent entries they had i think it was over 200 um that submitted a a pitch and outline and then also five pages of actual script material and then from there they picked 10 uh to do that to do a three-minute pitch and they were very strict on the time too they had a they had a person that was 
in charge of making sure that everybody knew exactly how much time they had left. And everybody, to their credit, ended on time. Um, so everybody had the, their pitches down, which was great. Yeah, cool. it was it was really cool. That's always my favorite event of the festival because it's it's always cool to hear about what networks and executives are like currently looking for. But it's also really cool to see how they respond to certain types of pitches and and different ways that people will present um, different styles of content. So if you do go to ATX, um, definitely go to the pitch competition because it's amazing. Um, all of that being said. Um, well, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna switch up the order a little bit because we've been talking about ATX. So I want to go ahead and introduce one of some highlights from an interview I did because we have another interview and two movie reviews to get to. So I'm gonna splice this interview up a little bit. Um, I got the chance to sit down with um, executive producer and showrunner Damon Lindelof and executive producers um, Tom Perota and Mimi Leader uh, from The Leftovers to talk about the finale and just some other things about the series throughout. One thing I was really, really interested in was the music. Um, that's my favorite part, I think, of one of my favorite parts of that show is just how emotional that music is and how... Um, it just really makes every single scene. It's, I mean, the acting on that show, of course, is incredible, but the music is something that really kind of gets overlooked. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that with them and then a number of other things. So um, here is my interview with the Leftovers creative team from ATX Festival. Can you talk maybe about the most memorable fan experience that's kind of stuck out with you with this series? Just interacting with the fans, you mean? Yeah, like if there was a, you know, something that just like really touched you and you were like, wow, this, this series is really, you know. I mean, I guess I'd say that at the end of the second season, it didn't look like there, or we were on the bubble. It looked like there was not going to be a third season and we were trying to start to make our peace with that. And then apparently a group of fans self-organized and dressed up in white and stood outside the HBO building and smoked cigarettes and held up signs <laughs> that said, you know, bring the leftovers back, you know, save the leftovers. And um, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but some friends of mine in New York, uh, like, um, sent me those photographs. And I, you know, am I, I was pretty overwhelmed by it. I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like it was cute or fun. I was like, wow, like, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's quite a, quite a thing. Yeah. I mean, every, every Halloween now I get a bunch of, uh, uh, pictures emailed me of like uh, people doing the guilty remnant Halloween, yeah. you know, and it's just like that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. I actually, uh, I cosplayed as a guilty remnant member at Dragon Con a couple of years back, and it was really funny because the people that got it really appreciated it, and the other people that didn't get it, they were like, "Why are you not saying anything?" Yeah, the GR would totally blow up Dragon Con. <laughs> totally would. Yeah. Um, set their sights on it for sure. <laughs> Um, so in the panel, um, you, you guys were talking about like when you came in and, and episode five of season one, um, can you guys kind of talk about like how you knew bringing you in as an executive producer and, and coming into the show and in that context, how did you guys, were you looking for someone at that point or what was the moment in which you felt the synergy, I guess? 
I think a couple different things were going on. Um, Pete Berg, who directed the pilot, made it very clear that he was going to leave after the pilot as a producerial force. We were writing the show and editing the show in L.A., so we needed somebody to be in charge in, in New York. Um, and Leslie Linka Glotter was doing that job initially, but she had to go back to Homeland, and we knew that she wasn't going to be able to finish the season. And we're starting to feel anxiety about, you know, uh, she was going to leave in like the space of like episode six or seven. And Mimi was already booked to direct episode five. And so once Mimi came in and direct, directed the fifth episode, immediately the, the level of communication just between us and Mimi as the episodic director, like, we didn't need to finish sentences anymore. She'd just be like, I got this. I know what you want. And I was like, she does get what well, I, I, I've never worked with this. I've never worked with this human before, but she does. And then she directed that episode, which I thought was stellar. And I think like, as soon as we saw your first cut, we called you and we're like, um, can you stay on the show forever? <laughs> can you just stay on it forever as long as we're making it? And you were kind and generous enough to say yes. And, um, and so she, she directed two more episodes of the first season, which I don't think you were originally slated to do. The finale no. was like unclaimed and, yeah. you know, so we gave you seven and ten and then yeah. she oversaw six, which was guest uh, with Carl Franklin um, while she was prepping seven and then um, and then uh, Michelle McLaren directed eight, yes. Dan Sackheim directed nine, Mimi prepped both them while, and then while she was basically prepping the, the incredibly ambitious <laughs> finale off of an outline. Yes. And, uh, and then, fortunately, when they picked up the show for the second year, you know, and there was never any question on our parts as to whether or not we wanted her to come back, but fortunately she did. And then we told her it was going to Texas, and she was like, cool. <laughs> and, and I'll just add, because I was in New York, because uh, you were new, and, and yeah. I, uh, you know, Damon thought maybe I should go there and just make sure, you know, I could answer any questions that Mimi had. But the, the great thing was, you had no voice. I had, yeah. So I got she was like the, the guilty remnant. So it was, it was very <laughs> funny. Like we had these sort of whispered conversations. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun. I remember Justin said, I'm very fond of this, you know, <laughs> communication. Um, one of the memories I have of uh, season one was. Tom came to the set on the day we were shooting uh, in order to find the baby on the porch. And it was his literal words that were in the novel. Uh, you know, look what I found. And, you know, I was very confident in the, in the entire filming of the show. But when he showed up for that last line, I kept looking at him like, is that good? <laughs> Did you? Is that everything you wanted it to be? Because it was the last words of this novel. You know, so, so she just shot take after take, but they yeah. were all great. <laughs> but I had it. <laughs> but I just had to just keep going. It was fun. Sometimes you gotta, you know, stop. Right. Um, I do want to ask about the score because it was such a you just sixteen hear it. to seven is the final score. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a powerful part of the series. That was a good one. <laughs> um, can you guys talk about I guess really the the coming up with that or the process that you went through um, to find that score and then the first time you heard it and you're like this is the this is it. You mean the Richter? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
Pete Berg went to go see. I always confuse Macbeth, it. Macbeth. Macbeth. It was a one man show that Alan Cumming was doing in New York around the time that we were shooting the pilot, and he said, "You got to find out who wrote the music because in between." The, um, the scene breaks they're playing this really cool music so we found out it was this guy named Max Richter and he he was most well known for this piece of music called The Nature of Daylight um, which I think that they used in um, in uh, uh, The Arrival yeah um, uh, but it's a, mm-hmm. it's a piece of modern day classical music that, and, and he had written a couple of like indie film scores like Waltz with Bashir etc and then some classical albums so I was able to listen to a lot of his music and we reached out to him and told him about the project and he said I'm open to scoring a television show so when you shoot a pilot um, you, you have to temp it and we ended up temping it with Max's music from all these other sources um, uh, and, but in big moments like when the mother loses her child in the opening instead of going like dun, 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 we, we use these this sort of sad piano riffs and but knowing that if the show got picked up they were going to have to be replaced fortunately by the same guy who who did them in the first place so I fell in love with the temp they call that tempitis in the editing room because <laughs> your brain just starts to yeah. get really used temp, to it uh... <laughs> and then uh, and then Max wrote original score for all those pieces and it was beautiful I mean the leftovers theme the same music that you hear over Nora and Kevin's final scene is what he wrote for what happens when that woman realizes that her baby is gone and it's not like we heard it and gave him notes. That's what it was. I mean, and so with Matt, what did I, what did I feel the first time that I heard that music? You know, the same thing that the audience feels like kind of devastation and sadness and beauty, like beauty and sadness don't feel like they're chocolate and peanut butter, but they are, they go great together. <laughs> and, and Richter's music just does that. Yeah, no, and it, it was, you know, I mean, such a big part of what what the show turned out to be. And I remember, uh, you know, Pete wanted more tense music, and and uh, we tried to remove the Richter and put in more tense music. And we were both like, no, no, it was that other thing, you know, because you know it didn't exist yet. And and the scene that really did it for me was the dog burial in the pilot, which also has the beautiful Richter. And and it was shot at night. It lit by the car's headlights. And the twins were being goofy, but Jill was being sad. And and I remember feeling like, oh, that's the show is happening here, like yeah. in that scene. And, and the music, without the music, I don't think I would have felt the show was happening there. So so I think we we very quickly felt like, oh, this music is. Um, somehow distills like the, yeah. the emotional essence of the show right and and I, and I think that the mistake that we made perhaps in the first season musically is we didn't use enough we didn't you know we didn't contrast the score with with enough other music and so you know we found by the time we got to the second and third seasons it was like the Richter stayed but we also brought in popular music and needle drops and country music and you know and uh, and Verdi and, and all so, kinds of spirituals yeah and, and it so it, it actually created a whole new texture for his score to play inside of but it felt like it was highly adaptable to it and then it got to the point where 
you know, we only peeled out that music. Like, it was like, you know, when I was growing up, there was the show The Incredible Hulk, and they could only afford for Banner to turn into Hulk twice an episode. (laughs) And I kind of feel like that way about Richter's music, which is when you deploy it, you're turning into the Hulk, you're going to smash some shit up. You're going to wake up in your jeans with no memory of what happened. And we removed it from the opening credits. Right. Also, you know, when that was a very heavy, heavy piece of music. Right. Even though we loved it. I know, I, I did. But I also felt like, again, in uh, season one, was it Captain and Tennille yes. from Matt? Right. And then when, when Patty takes Laurie away from the GR for that, we had yes. to play like Hall and Oates, I think. Yes. So. And it turned out like <laughs> the cheesiest pop music also went really well. With the it's Michael, it's Michael McDonald's <laughs> oh, yes. that she's listening to. Oh, and, right. and she just, <laughs> Patty just starts going like this. But, uh, yeah. I know you guys haven't listened to that interview yet, but isn't it great? Oh, it's so awesome. <laughs> I want to hear more. <laughs> when we record this, um, usually we sometimes will pretend to have listened to the interview. I obviously have because I did it. But um, these guys <laughs> won't actually hear that interview until this podcast comes out. So little behind the scenes magic. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about Nashville as well, because I was gone last week and uh, the weekend before that, before ATX Festival, I was actually in Nashville for Walker Stalker Con and I um, got to sit down with uh, the dearly departed Glenn, uh, played by Stephen Yun, and um, got to talk with him a little bit about life after The Walking Dead and specifically wanted to ask him, I always think it's really interesting when actors come off of a very successful genre show and the uh, kind of choices they make with their career after that, because uh, you don't want to get kind of, you know, pigeonholed into just doing genre stuff over and over and over again. Um, you want to, I, I think, you know, I'm not an actor, but you, you want to be able to, to do different types of material and, and really grow your skill set. So that was one of the things that I talked to him about. Um, in addition to what he has coming up, um, some memorable fan experiences, and also what he misses most about living in Atlanta. So all of that being said, here is my interview with Stephen Young from uh, Walker Stalker Con Nashville. Um, over the years of playing Glenn, what did he teach you about yourself that you kind of like discovered? I think he taught me <clears throat> that a lot of people love living with things explained to them or in certain boxes and categories and sometimes you as a person can fall into the trap of listening to those people and actually thinking that that's what you're supposed to be even though you feel that you're not you just kind of do what you are assumed to do and i think that's something that i had a great realization with with glenn was just like just doing my own thing right yeah uh, well, on the flip side of that, um, from, again, playing the role for so long, professionally, what are you taking away from your acting experience that you kind of, you know, learned and, and refined um, during the time of the show to your future projects? Yeah, I mean, it taught me a lot about leadership, you know, working with really great actors and really professional ones at that uh, was really excellent. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and I think it also, like, Help me flex a lot of different muscles. Oh my god. <coughs> um, you know, um, Glenn got to do a lot of different things. 
So that was really fulfilling. Yeah. yeah. Um, this weekend, um, being this is your your first one or your first convention after the Atlanta Walker Stalker last year, right? Or have you done a couple others? Uh, I did other ones, but not a Walker Stalker. Yeah. Um, what would you say from this weekend? What's your uh, your most memorable kind of fan experience? Um, I don't know. I think I think all of them are kind of that same great vibe, which is like they're very sad to see Glenn gone. And I think um, that's a really cool thing to know that, you know, the, the character that I got to play has had such a lasting impact. And that we get to go to different regions and different areas of the world and they think that same way. So, you know, like, we're at a very funky time right now where, like, nobody believes anybody. And what's cool is, like, there's clear commonality you know that we have but we're ignoring that but I'm I'm happy to um, experience the commonality of it right yeah. right um, <clears throat> well aside from obviously missing your your castmates and being a part of the show what would you say you miss most about Atlanta man I miss the air I miss the like it was just such clean clean air I miss the vibe of the city. I miss the restaurants. I miss, you know, just, I, I love Atlanta. I love the space, you know. Um, I love, I, I miss riding my motorcycle around. Um, yeah, no, there's, Atlanta's pretty great. It's a good city, yeah. good city. Um, with the, all of the projects you have coming up, did you kind of, were you looking for specific types of projects after you finished Walking Dead to kind of, you know, because I know a lot of actors, you know, they're on a show like this yeah. and then they keep doing shows like this. Yeah, do you, yeah. Was that a concern you had at all? Like, I want to do a bunch of different types of stuff in other genres as well right. or anything like that? Um, I think that's, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's a, certainly a strategy that you can do. I think the way that I thought about it more was just, I experienced this for seven years, living this type of life, playing this type of character, and I would have been so bored if I did that again. So I really have been holding out and just kind of waiting for those projects that are very different, that get to show a different side. Not because I necessarily want to just show that, but also because I really don't like doing the same thing more than once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, after finishing your run on the show, did you take like a big vacation or do anything and kind of like celebration of like, you know, actually, lighten the mood of all of it? <laughs> actually, right after we finished filming, I went straight into another movie. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which was actually a wonderful, amazing experience. And that's the film that Okja, we're, we're going to go out to tour with. But yeah, no, it, it kind of worked out perfectly. It was like it, I went to Korea, Vancouver, New York, and it was its own mini vacation. Right. It was amazing, yeah. Um, well, could you do like kind of a brief tease for all the stuff that you have coming out for the rest of the year that we can kind of at the end of the article. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> we did this small, tiny film called Mayhem in Serbia earlier last year that went to South by Southwest and then got bought to, I think, come out on AMC's streaming site and okay. it's going to come out in theaters for a little bit. Okay. 
it's kind of crazy. It's this tiny film that we put together that somehow has these legs that just keep running. And um, Okja is coming out later this month at, on Netflix. And um, <clears throat> there's this animated film called The Star that comes out for Christmas. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. That's got a really good cast in it, too. I was yeah, checking cool. that out. Yeah. So that's cool. Well, thank you yeah. for your time. And there you go. There you have it. Ooh. Well done, I, Emma. Well done. Thank you. I'm assuming. Um, <laughs> I will say he was a sport. Um, he literally like had to to run to get in a car to get to the airport after finishing this interview. I was I was the last thing that he he did at the uh, at the uh, convention, and he was sick on top of that. So oh, he was he was popping some throat lozenges uh, <laughs> during the panel, which was funny because <laughs> I also had a sinus cold. So. Um, nice. Yeah. I am really looking forward to um, Okja, which he's in. Yeah. And that's uh, coming out. I want to say it's June 28th. It premieres on Netflix. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. It's soon. Yeah. Very, it's, very soon. It's this month, I know. And they've, uh, yeah. he talks a, talked a little bit about it in the interview, you know, the kind of the press tour that they are going on for it. So I've, yeah. I've seen some content, the uh, content that's been popping up from that. So that's pretty cool. Um, all of that being said, uh, let's get into some movie stuff. Um, all right. Did you guys make bets on anything last week? I don't think we did. No, we didn't make any bets. Yeah. I, uh, we both predicted that the mummy would probably do what it did, and then we yeah. also felt that that Wonder Woman would be number one. Um, yeah. So that was the two. That was kind of the two things we talked about. Well, uh, Wonder Woman did come in at number one with 58 million, followed by The Mummy, which premiered in second with 31 million, and Captain Underpants falling to third, and fourth, Pirates of the Caribbean, and fifth, Guardians of the Galaxy, still holding on to the to the top five. Um, and then I think it's worthy of mentioning the the other two that we've talked about. Um, it comes at night, premiering in sixth, and Megan Levy premiering at eighth. I know you both really loved that movie, but it doesn't seem like it did too well. Yeah. yeah I mean, it was a really small movie. So, I mean, it, it, there wasn't much publicity about it either, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, saw, I saw her in a couple of talk shows last week promoting the film, but uh, it, it seems like they didn't really promote it as well as they should have. Um, it's certainly... I think it will do well once it comes out, um, you know, on on uh, DVD, Blu-ray, um, because it's a movie that people are going to want to watch. Um, and you know, there's kind of been a little bit of a of a of a, a thing against it comes at night. It's got a it got a really bad cinema score. Yeah. And a cinema score is a thing where they actually talk to people. Uh, coming out of the theater and getting their opinions and it got a really bad cinema score even though most critics love the film including myself um, and I think it's because people are thinking that they're going in to see a horror film and it's not a horror film in any way shape or form it's a suspense film um, so I think people were thinking oh this is going to be about zombies and yeah. There's going to be monsters or something, and then got really disappointed in the fact that it was just a suspense film. Well, and and um, part but, of that is A24's fault, because, I mean, the trailers do make it seem like a horror film. Right. With suspense, of course. 
But, right. Um, so, like, our reviewer for Shakefire.com, Maria, she actually did not like it. So, I still haven't seen it. I am I am still interested in seeing it. So. Well, I, I loved it. I thought it hit the mark perfectly. Um, I thought the performances were really, really good. Um, and I think it's a great suspense film. It's just not a horror film. So, that's where we're at. Well, um, we have a couple of films that are coming out this week. How do you think that those releases will impact our top five? Well, Cars is going to be number one. Cars 3. That's my guess. Um, I think it'll be Cars 3, Wonder Woman. Uh, yeah, Cars 3, Wonder Woman, Rough Night, Mummy. That's pretty fair. That's my guess. I, I think that sounds yeah. pretty accurate. What about you, Mike? Um, I, I, I certainly... Uh, Cars 3 is going to do well. Um, that's certainly uh, something. It'll be interesting to see what Rough Night does, because it's an R-rated film, uh, R-rated comedy. It is uh, basically almost a totally uh, uh, all-female cast. Uh, with Scarlett Johansson and Kate McKinnon, the two star powers of that of that film, um, I the the critics are gonna kill it. I think uh, Matt of the three of us will talk about it a little later, <laughs> but um, yeah, um, you know there don't, and there's uh, and you've also got away, yeah, but you, you know I think I think we're looking at uh, Rough Night. I'm looking at between 15 and 20 million. Um, I think Cars 3 will be number one. I think it's going to be in the 50s. Um, I think Wonder Woman will be number two in the probably the mid 30s. Um, you know, you've got a couple of other uh, movies coming out. Uh, the Tupac Shakur film, All Eyes on Me, is coming out. Um, and uh, 47 Meters Down, which is the shark movie which I think will not do well, uh, even though they've marketed it as much as they could. Uh, but I think 47 Meters Down is going to do pretty badly at the box office, uh, probably in the the 4, uh, $4 million to $5 million range. So, uh, But I think Cars 3 will be doing yeah. probably 55 to $60 million and be number one. Yeah. I mean, it's Disney Pixar. They always dominate the box office. That's true. And kids are, of course, out of school now. Um, actually, yeah. I don't know what time of year kids get out of school anymore. I know when no, it was me, out. it was the first week of June I got out. So um, I imagine they get out in May, late May. Really? Yeah. I have two nieces. They've been out for a couple weeks now. Lucky kids. Yeah. Well, um, they go back. They go back really early, too. Like beginning uh, or like early August is when they go back. Yeah, I so. used to, when it, I think it was like August, like 20th or so, when it was yeah. back in the day, back in my back day. In the day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, one thing I think with Cars 3 is I don't think it's going to have legs. I think it's going to do. Because it's got wheels. Ha! <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> terrible. I had to. Absolutely I had to. terrible. It has. Uh, your, your boyfriend <laughs> is wearing off on you, Emma. <laughs> oh, it's so punny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I just, I just think that Cars Three, uh, it's, it, first off, that that's the, and we'll talk about it later, but it's the, it is the probably the weakest of the Pixar franchises, 
Um, so I just don't see it's going to have legs. I think this is going to be a big box office for one weekend, and then it's going to, uh, you know, go back way down. <laughs> Especially with the stuff we all the summer films we've got coming up too. Fair enough. Um, Might as well jump into reviews now, since Mike uh, has been reviewing everything already i know just spoiler alerts here um <laughs> uh that being said uh which one of you wants to set up our cars 3 review with a description of what the film is about i'll let matt do that one all right so cars 3 follows lightning mcqueen once again um owen wilson voices him and basically time has not been good to him he's the old car now and, you know, the whole stock car racing, they've moved ahead to the newer, younger models who are definitely more faster. And the new one who's making a scene is Jackson Storm, who's played by Army Hammer. And so he comes along winning all these races and it gets to Lightning McQueen, who gets into an accident and kind of goes into the shadows for a while. And it's basically like, from there, it's this comeback story of Lightning training to trying to get back into the race and beat Jackson Storm. So, that's pretty much the general gist of Cars 3. Gotcha. Uh, well, let's, let's hop right into it. On a boredom scale of 1 to 5, how bored were you? I'm saying 4. I was, I was bored out of my mind in this movie um, the only good thing I will say about this movie is that the Larry the Cable Guy car, uh, the, the tow truck Mater does not have as big a part as he had in Cars 2 um, he is a he's basically a secondary character that basically just cheers on um, uh, uh, our, our hero Lightning um, but uh I was bored a great deal of time, and this freaking movie is long for an animated film. It, 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 and I started looking at my watch about 15 minutes into the film, so that's not a good sign. I don't know. I wasn't too bored. I would say I would give it a two and a half. Um, I liked all the training stuff that Lightning McQueen goes. Um, he has a new a new trainer, Cruz Ramirez, who's played by Cristiella Alonso. And I, I thought she was a good addition to the franchise. She kind of livened things up. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it did slow down in a couple of par- parts that I felt like, okay, get to the next thing. But, I mean, the film itself is visually amazing to look at. Like, this is a step above a lot of the other things that Pixar has done. I mean, regardless of how good Pixar's films are, like, even, you know, as Mike said before, yes, the Cars franchise is the weakest of Pixar's films. Like, they still look amazing. Like, yeah. Gotcha. Um, well, I feel like it's it's always kind of weird to do a best performance in an animated film, uh, but let's do it. So, <laughs> which, uh, which car <laughs> did you guys like which best? Which car? I'm going to say Cruz, Cruz Ramirez, which is... Uh, Cristela Alonso. I mean, I thought that she brought some energy to the film that was was needed. Um, and there's a nice. I, I re- the one thing I did like about this film is I liked the ending of this film. Um, I thought they did an excellent job with the with the ending. 
Um, I'm not going to give anything away, but um, it's a. I, I at least came away feeling a little better about it um, with with the ending that they did. Yeah, no, I I will agree as well. You know, I thought she did a great job. Um, as yeah, as a new addition, as I said before. <laughs> gotcha. Um, did I, we skip eye rolling factor though? I did, believe we did. Did I? Oh, man. I think we, I think <laughs> we went straight. You take a week off. I know. You, I just forget everything. All right. Um, I actually was trying to do it from memory because I'm like, this is episode 59. I should I should know the structure down. by now, but clearly I don't. So that's awesome. Um, so <laughs> eye rolling factor. We're just changing it up a little this week. Yeah. Little um, switch. Little switch. Uh, Keep us on our feet, on our wheels. <laughs> on your wheels, there you go. <laughs> Eye rolling factor, one to five. Um, how obnoxious did you find things? I'm gonna give this a four. It is, there are, there is a lot of eye rolling moments. You know, the humor is definitely not as um, entertaining as it has been in the past. You know, this is definitely more geared towards kids. You know, most of Pixar's. They follow in that middle ground where they're good for both adults and kids, but um, this one it gears heavily towards towards the kids. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree uh, for also. Um, it just a lot of the jokes did not work, um, and uh, you know, and then some stuff we've seen before in this series. Uh, they did try to change a few things around. Um, but it's still, it still, it, it feels old also. It feels very tired to me, um, which is interesting because it's only the third one. Um, you know, this isn't like the Ice Age movies where it went on forever and you finally, they finally said, oh, wait a minute, this, we're, we're really at the end of the, end of the dredge here. But, um, uh, yeah, I'd give it a four. So worst performance, um, I guess. Uh, which, which car did you like the least? <laughs> hmm. Well, I could, I could, you know, I'm going to tell you, Larry the Cable Guy, just because I find find his character is just irritating. But I was actually disappointed in Nathan Fillon uh, because I'm a huge Nathan Fillon fan, and I thought he would have brought uh, some really cool stuff to this film, and. I did. I just didn't didn't get it from him. Um, he plays the 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 new owner, um, who of of that that's sponsoring Lightning McQueen and is bringing all this new high technology to to, to train Lightning, um, and he has a whole bunch of new ideas on how to do stuff. Um, but I just didn't feel it for me. Yeah, he wasn't the best, but or. I would say um, I wasn't a fan of Army Hammer as Jackson Storm. I mean, he felt very generic. Like, there was just, okay, he's a new fast car. Like, there wasn't much anything else to him besides that. And I kind of would have liked to see more for him being, like, the big villain kind of guy. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen somebody, I don't know, I'm just thinking on top of my head, but, uh, like, Paul Rudd or, I don't know, somebody that was a little... um, a little more smooth um, and could d- deliver the lines a little better. Um, I just, he, he definitely was kind of flat. And as far as making him the villain of the story, um, it's, he's a pretty weak villain. Yeah. 
Like, all he does is to win the races. There's nothing else to him. <laughs> um, well, I'm assuming there's no ATL recognition factor here. There is uh, no. not. There's not. No. <laughs> is it? Is it set in a real city at all, or is it all... No, it's all just cars, Pixar land or whatever. Pic- Pixar land. It's a happy yeah. land. Usually. It's a happy land. Except yeah. for like five minutes when there's something that happens that makes you cry. <laughs> I, I'm looking yeah. it yeah, up. I mean, I'm they, looking they, it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing. That's that's part of it is that there there is some uh, some of it because he's reflecting on, on his because he's trying to decide whether he wants to retire or not. And he's reflecting on his his racing days and also his his past with uh, with the uh, Paul Newman voice character, which, of course, Paul Newman uh, uh, died quite a while ago. Um, so they do some flashbacks um, and make it a little to where, you know, where we get to actually hear Paul Newman speak a couple of times, which is kind of kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and they, his character was Doc Hudson. Uh, if you remember the first one, Doc Hudson was the crusty ex-racer who took... Uh, took lightning under his wing and, and trained him and was his pit crew boss and everything. Um, and, you know, there's a couple other people that have also are in this film that, uh, so there was a lot of, there's a lot of talking about the, showing the past, in fact. The, and he goes and visits a couple of uh, legendary racetracks that um, either he participated in or uh, his hero, um, Doc Hudson participated in, so it's kind of a little bit of nostalgia trip, also. Yeah, but see, like this, I didn't get the emotional pull that like other Pixar films have had. Like even the Good Dinosaur had those strong, you know, emotional moments, you know, with the whole family and stuff. But like with this, I didn't, I didn't feel anything, even when he was going back into his past and it was just yeah like, there, I, there's definitely there's definitely a lack of uh, tug on the hard strings in this film um and and that's probably its weakest point is that it just doesn't have the emotional impact the no, that the no, normal pixar film has and i think that's true with all three of these um of these the, you know the first cars uh, was the same thing um i just don't think this is a series that they you know let them go make straight to video stuff. Um, I just don't think this is a series worthy of the Pixar name. Other than the fact that, that Matt's right, the the animation is just spectacular, and there were times when I was going to, you know, that looks so real. Um, the dirt, you know, and the tire treads and things like that was just amazing. Well, uh, overall, on the official Atlas scale, what would you rate Cars Three? I mean, I would still, like, I enjoyed this more than Cars 2. Like, it is still a better film than Cars 2. So. That's not saying a lot. That's not saying a lot, though. <laughs> Cars 2 is still the worst Pixar film, I would say. Um, yes. So, I mean, I would give it an ATL with, like, a little, little A. <laughs> so, like, 3.2? Yeah, 3.25. <laughs> All right. Jeez, that's that's way higher than I would give it. Because, um, I mean, I, I still a, enjoyed it. Like, it had its faults, but I still enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not going to be as generous as you, Matt. Um, I'm going to give it an, an at. A two. 
All right. Yep. So that sounds like a winner. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's going to win. A, yeah, it will. It's, Pixar, it's Disney. Yeah, it's it is win. a film. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a film that little kids, uh, you know, up to probably six or seven are going to enjoy. Yeah. Um, and it's got a great message for both uh, for for all kids, for both boys and girls. Um, and uh, that's one of the things I liked about it was that it's got a great message. Like I said, I really like the ending. But for adults, you're going to be bored. You're going to be bored, I guarantee it. Well, um, speaking of, I'm trying to just think of a transition here, and I've got nothing. (laughs) It's it's rough, like Rough Night. There we go. (laughs) Um, uh, So we all saw Rough Night last night, and I'm going to let Mike set this one up, because I think it's going to be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, Scarlett Johansson is running for a local public office in her town, and uh, but she's also getting married. And she and her college friends, they some of which she hasn't seen in two or three years, it's been 10 years since they graduated college, they are all getting together to go to Miami and have a bachelorette party where they've rented a house on the beach and it's going to be awesome um joining the the crew besides the four uh members of the college is somebody that scarlett johansson met when she went on a trip right after college graduation and went to australia and that's the kate mckinnon character um, so these five women get together and they're having a great time and they order after a night out on the town. They go back to the, um, the, the house they're renting and they party some more and they decide to order a male stripper. And the male stripper shows up and then things go horribly long from that point on. Yep. Um. And they end up killing them. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. That's in the trailers. It's in the oh, trailers. Oh, is it? So. I haven't actually part, seen that's, trailers that's the main, for this one. <laughs> that's the main part of the film is that, oh, Bachelor and that party gone wrong, they kill a stripper, and it's how they hide the fact that they killed the stripper. That's, well, the, um, <laughs> that's the rest of the movie, yeah. um, and hilarity ensues. Does it? Um. <laughs> I, I was laughing. I will admit, I was laughing. I think uh, Mike and I were on the same page with this. I'm going to save the comment that I, I gave when I left the theater until my overall impression of the film. Um, but let's start. It's, it's worth sticking around for because it's, it's really. <laughs> it's, it's I don't funny. think I've ever been so brutally honest about a film as I, I was with that one. Um, that being said, you know, there were a lot of people in the audience that really loved this movie and like were laughing hysterically. And I just I didn't and understand why. But um, let's just get started. Um, boredom factor, one to five. How bored were you? Um, I would say there's a lot of lulls in this film. Um, I did not enjoy this film at all, so I was, I was bored. I'm going to give it a four. Um, and I was hoping that, I mean, I love Scar- <clears throat> Scarlett Johansson, um, and she's shown that she can do comedy before. And then Kate McKinnon, I was expecting to just steal the movie, and she doesn't. Um, so I was bored. 
I was really bored. Fair enough. Uh, what about you, Matt? <laughs> I was not as bored. <laughs> I I will probably be the most lenient of the the other two of these guys. So, um, no, I mean I was laughing. So I would probably give it a two, two and a half, on boredom. You know, there were some lulls. Um, there were some jokes that didn't quite hit. And really, yeah. <laughs> Um, but there were plenty of jokes that did hit, for me at least, and yeah, so, well. so yeah, like, come on, how could you, did you not laugh at that Rob Lowe joke? Yeah, th- there were some good that ones. Was, that I'll give you that. Good. There were some good yeah. ones. Like, um, I don't know though. I mean, for me, I'm gonna say four, um, and. I mean, you guys summed it up pretty well. Uh, so I'm going to hop right into eye rolling, which I'm going to give a five for eye rolling. <laughs> Just leave it at that and let you guys run with it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, fi- I'm at a five. I would give it a 5.5 5, uh, on eye rolling. Um, here, here's one of the things that I have. I have real trouble with this type of movie, and I understand that they're just going for com- the comedy. But... When a film uses drugs as casually as this film does, and it's, in this case, it's cocaine and meth, um, I just have a problem with that um, because they show it as just no consequences. They're having a fun time. Ooh, look, they're acting goofy because they're on coke. You know, uh, the guy's acting weird because he's on meth. And I just, I hate when movies do this. Um you know, at just to use the, I don't know. That's just a pet peeve of mine, and it bothers me when, when especially comedies do this, and make it seem so innocent and everybody like everybody's doing it, and it's okay, and isn't it fun? And so I had a I had a big problem with that. Hmm. Yeah, I would give it a a four. You know, there was as yes, it's funny, but there's a lot of eye rolling. I mean, it's it's a raunchy comedy bachelorette party i mean that's my biggest problem with the film is that yes it's a bachelorette party and so it follows that same format that all bachelorette parties follows you know things get out of control they do ridiculous things like it's the same generic format that they do with that so that was my biggest complaint so there is a lot of eye rolling i think that um i don't know bridesmaids was such an unexpected awesome movie you know you went into it expecting it to not be good and then you left and you were like wow that was actually like that was an awesome comedy and that's that's because bridesmaids make you cared about the characters right this one you you don't it doesn't make you care about the characters not at all it's just Um, and it definitely tried to be you know it tries to be another bridesmaids which it isn't it's, Nothing can be a, is another bridesmaids. Right, right. So, um, well, best performance. I personally would give that to the only part of the movie I did not dislike, which was Kate McKinnon. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say she stole the movie, but um, she was the only enjoyable part of it for me. No, yeah, I loved I love Kate McKinnon. She was great. Is she what is she Australian or is she just putting on an Australian accent? In real life, or are you talking about her character? In real life. What is she? Is in she... real life, no. 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 Okay. I don't know. <laughs> she is from um, Sea Cliff, New York. 
Oh god. Oh, That's she's old. actually she's younger than me. That's weird. Yeah. Um, I don't. All right, never mind. That's a tangent. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'm older than I think I am. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I've given it to Kate McKinnon also, but I I still was disappointed in the fact because I really wanted her. You know, I was like thinking, well, before I saw this movie, I was like. At least this guy, Kate McKinnon and Scarlett Johansson, and I love both of them, and I know that Kate McKinnon is going to give it her all, and they just didn't give her enough material. Um, you know, there's a couple of funny things she does, but overall, and, and some of the other, and we'll get into this, but some of the other cast members are just extremely boring. Um was like I like so, Kate McKinnon, and I also like Jillian Bell. I'll probably get a lot of flack for this, I bet, from you two. But I, I thought she was funny as, as well. You know, like I loved her in Twenty Two Jump Street. Um, even in Fist Fight, she was good. And so, like this one, you know, she's always been that whole raunchy kind of right. You know, out there comedian. So. Um, I mean, she had moments, uh, but she was kind of like at the the heart of the eye rolling factor for me. Yeah, um, I mean, she can be obnoxious and in your face, and you can really get tired of her quickly if you're yeah. not too careful. And I and I did. Um, I thought she was just way over the top, um, and and some of it's not her fault. Her character is just an annoying character. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's meant to be, but it just they pushed it too far uh, with this character. Um, so worst performance, who would you guys give that to? I'm almost saying it's a tie for anyone that's not Kate McKinnon, but that's just me personally. <laughs> um, I would. I, I'm going to give it to Zoe Kravitz. Um, I thought her performance was really, really bland. Um, I mean, she's playing this more of a kind of a, a fashionista it's got it together everybody thinks she's got a great life kind of deal but um, you know there's a there's a scene um, with uh, with Ty Burrell and Demi Moore um, and I don't want to go too much into it but I, she could have gone so much farther with that scene and she didn't and I thought that was a wasted opportunity I don't know I thought that scene was pretty funny <laughs> Well, you're you're liking this movie a lot more than we are. I so. know, I know. <laughs> um, I would actually go with Scarlett Johansson. I just wasn't feeling her in this film. Like, I know she was she was like supposed to be front and center, but I liked everybody else better than her, and she just she felt really bland to me. She did feel really bland, especially like with as big as a star as she is yeah she was a star power in that yeah and she just she just didn't do anything um well obviously there is no atl recognition factor here because it was i don't know if it was actually shot in miami but uh that's where it was set and it was at the beach so um, but overall, um, the comment, we should each say the comments that we, we left the theater. Like when we, you know, the, there's usually a, a PR person that's waiting to get like our, our just kind of like thoughts our about opinions. the film, our opinions. Um, and normally I find a way to, to 
find something nice to say, you know, like, <laughs> like Bambi style. If you can't say anything nice, then just don't say anything at all. But um, uh, I actually said it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> so that was Ouch. my that was my um, that was my review. Of the so film. I take it. You're giving it a zero, then, probably. Um, you know what? I'm not going to be, like, super mean about it. I'm going to give it a one. Oh, 0.25. <laughs> yeah, 0.25. You know what? Yes, I'm going to give it a 0.25. It gets a ah. Not a full a. Ah. It gets an ah. just screaming. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do and leave the theater through the majority <laughs> of this film. Um, oh. It's just, it's not, it's not a smart movie. Like... It's, it's, I mean, we've, we've, you guys did a great job with breaking down all of the problems in it, but it's just not a smart comedy. And, um, but I do think that there's, it will appeal to a lot of people because there were a ton of other people in the screening who thought it was hysterical too. Um, it's just not my, not what I'm looking for. I wanted another Bridesmaids and that was probably too much to be wishing for. Yeah. I would... I'm more generous, so um, I'm giving it a, an at half a, at a, at no. Wait, at, what? At la, an a, <laughs> three and a half, three and a half. Three and a half, three and a half, three and okay. A half. So I forgot the L, the addle. Really? At that's really, See, I, that's right. generous. My, my, my comment, my comment was, I laughed. I thought it was fine. That was my comment. <laughs> and so like... Right in the middle ground. All right. Well, well and then I'm going to give it a very small A. That's just it. Just a small A. <laughs> not, a not a capital letter A, just a small A. Um, on my website, last one to leave to theater.com, um, my lowest ranking is you would have to pay me to see it again. And that's what I told the person, the rep. That's how bad I. Did, I just did not enjoy this film at all, and I very rarely laughed, um, and it just was another movie where I was looking at my watch, wanting to be this film to be over with, you know. And it, you know the other and the other problem is just the fact that once again you've got a film that the centerpiece is they killed somebody. Now yeah, it's an accident, but then they try to cover it up. Yeah. You know, and it's that's. That's not the greatest thing to be your centerpiece is, is death. By the way, the film was shot in New York, and uh, uh, their locations for the beaches was Southampton and then out in California at Hermosa Beach. Yeah. So they did not shoot in Miami at all. Good to know. Um, well, I think, I think that about sums it up. I do want to ask Matt what his least favorite film of all time is, though, based upon his review of, of all his time? gracious oh your gracious review of, of Rough Night. I want to know um, of all time. Yeah, I, like I would what, have to think about that. Um, I you don't can, have that. You can tell us next week if you want. Yeah, but I want a film that you would. You will. I mean, right. I liked. I liked. Um, the Book of Henry less than um, Rough Night. Um, so. Yeah, we want to we want to warn people about Book of Henry in the fact that it's a complete mess of a film, um, and I cannot recommend it at all. Um, the The second half of the film is just a huge mess, 
and uh, it's not what I thought it was going to be, and it was a very big disappointment. Well, um, Rock, Rock Dog. Rock Dog was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Throwback. That was this year. Yeah. How can um, we forget that terrible movie? Well, I never saw it, so it's easy for me. I had already forgotten about it. <laughs> but, um, well, cool. Um, so we don't really have a lot of films to recommend this week. Um, go see Wonder Woman again because it's awesome. Yeah. And and yeah, I, I've got a, I've got I do have two um, that are coming out. They're smaller films. One is Dean uh, Dimitri Martin uh, wrote, uh, directed, and stars in it. It's a wonderful small little movie about. A man who's an illustrator, he's uh, lost his mom and is kind of, she was his cheerleader and his support, and he's kind of lost out there. And then he meets Jillian Jacobs at a party. She's from California. He's from New York. Uh, she's leaving for California next day, and he decides to go out to California and try to find her. Um, it's a nice, small film. The other one is Wakefield which is Brian Cranston. Now, I'm going to warn you, it's a little bit of a strange film uh, with uh, Jennifer Garner. Uh, Brian Cranston is a lawyer um, in a marriage that's kind of falling apart, and he comes home one day, and um, he uh, it, the powers out in the whole neighborhood. He comes home. There's a raccoon that, that uh, take, he tries to scare off. It goes into the garage. It goes up into the attic. He goes up in the attic, and then... Basically, he decides to stay in the attic and not tell anybody and hide from the world and hide from his wife and his kids and just sits up there and observes how his family deals with the fact that he's not not part of the family anymore. Um, it was a really great performance by Brian Cranston, and I love Jennifer Garner in it. So though, those are two smaller films. If you don't want to go see the big ones, go see Dean or go see Wakefield. And next week, we'll have reviews for you guys for the new Transformers film and The Hero. And we'll also have a couple of interviews from Younger, which airs on TV Land and is back for its fourth season in uh, uh, just a few few weeks here um, before the end of the month. So we'll dive into that next next episode. And I would tease Project Cosplay, but that will have already happened by the time you guys hear this. So um, Comet Cosplay is coming up and it's going to be on July 3rd at the Comet um, Pub and Lanes in Decatur. And we're going to have a ton of Spider-Man stuff to give away at that one. So if you want to get some Spidey gear and have a fun night um, with with uh, some bowling and some nerdy stuff and 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 see what what kind of crappy T-shirt I wear as far as my, uh, yes. my non-costume <laughs> and Mike and Mike that's our team name and Mike because um, we'll all probably be in costumes and then there will be Mike. And Mike. <laughs> um, so cool that uh, that is it for this week's episode. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And again, my name is Emma Loggins. I'm the editor in chief at Fanbolt.com. I am Matt Rodriguez, the owner and chief editor of Shakefire.com. And I'm Mike from last one to leave the theater.com and ATLCW.tv. And we'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>